This evening, I came here to speak to you about Vietnam. I do not have to tell you that our people are profoundly concerned about that struggle. In the late 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, Robin Bartlett, a young American just out of college, like so many of his countrymen, found himself serving in Vietnam. Robin provides a detailed and candid look at his experiences in the conflict in his book, Vietnam Combat, Firefights in Writing History, about his experiences as a young man thrust into a leadership position and forced to make life or death decisions on a daily basis, only like so many veterans from Vietnam, to return home having proudly served the country to anything but a hero's welcome. Robin, I don't often focus an episode on a particular historical topic just based around one person's, you know, recollections of those events. But having read your book, which I found extraordinary and very evocative, so I'm really excited to have you on because I feel like you have a really nuanced perspective in your book. And so from that point, let's jump right in. Based on your service in Vietnam and the military pedigree in your family, a lot of people might think that it was always just predestined for you to follow that path. By reading your book, you made it clear that originally you had no intention of going into the military, correct? My grandfather went to West Point and my father went to West Point and my brother went to West Point. My father got me an appointment to West Point and I said, no, I've had enough of the military. I went to 13 elementary and middle schools and four high schools and I said, enough already. But uh, as I went through college, uh, the Vietnam War started to build up and my family took it very seriously that we were in service to our country. And those words really meant something to us. We were in service. I answered the phone at home, Colonel Bartlett's quarters, may I help you, sir? That's how I answered the phone as a civilian. I decided to go into the ROTC program. It was second nature to me. And then at the ripe age of 21, you know, with a college degree and being brilliant at the age of 21, knowing everything there was to know, I really decided to challenge myself to do the most challenging thing that I could think of. And that was to go into the infantry. I volunteered for it. I volunteered for the infantry airborne assignment to the 82nd Airborne Division. I was a regular army officer, a distinguished military graduate, followed in the family tradition. Let's put it that way. One aspect of the Vietnam conflict that marks it out is the relative youth of the soldiers. By comparison, you know, World War One. I've covered that previously on the podcast. There were quite a lot of men who were professionals, married men, seasoned soldiers going off to that war. Whereas in Vietnam, I believe the average age of people killed was 19. And in your book, there's a chapter which you call the first worst day, obviously implying there were many more worst days as time went on. But one element of the story that stuck out to me was that it illustrates the youthfulness of you and your colleagues and more broadly the American armed forces going into that particular conflict. Can you tell me about that? I was the second oldest man in my platoon. The oldest was 24. 
And the majority of men were 18, 19. My platoon sergeant, interestingly, who was supposed to be the most experienced man in the unit, usually they had 10, 15 years worth of experience, was what they called an instant NCO. And he had his 18th birthday in Vietnam. And he had gone through a special training course at Fort Benning, Georgia, and was promoted to be a platoon sergeant. But he and I basically had about the same amount of training and preparation, although I went through the Ranger training course, which was, in effect, the most uh, important insurance policy an officer could have in Vietnam. But that chapter is called My First Worst Day because Roberts was my first KIA, killed in action. My first introduction to him was that he came out to the field sweating profusely, wearing a T-shirt, and we never wore underwear in Vietnam. It was just way too hot. And carrying an overload of, of equipment and a pack which was twice as heavy as what he needed to carry. And he saluted me. And saluting in Vietnam was absolutely forbidden. We wore no insignia. The only way you would know I was an officer was on my helmet band, which was a quarter of an inch wide. It was written Lieutenant Bartlett, LT Bartlett. That was the only way you knew I was an officer. Well, except for the fact that I had a map in my thigh pocket and a radio operator who was within two steps of me. And Roberts joined our unit as an FNG, an effing new guy. And he had also gone through one of these instant NCO programs and had been promoted to Sergeant E5, which is a, basically a squad leader. And he wanted to be the squad leader. He wanted to be a squad leader. My squad leaders were specialist fourth class, which is a lower rank than a Sergeant E5. And he was very unhappy about that, very gung-ho. He wanted to get his first kill. He wanted to get a medal. He was ready to trot. He wanted to be squad leader. And I said, you don't get the promotion. You don't get the responsibility until you have acclimatized and until you've been in the field for at least a month. And you had a chance to understand how we operated and how things worked. Well, he wasn't very happy about that. But those were the rules. I couldn't trust him with a, a responsibility as a squad leader until he had a little time in the field. And people wouldn't trust him for leadership responsibilities. One of my squads went out on a patrol and he volunteered to go with him. And I said, okay, as long as you understand, you are not in charge of that patrol. And he said he did. And the patrol got into a contact with the sniper and uh, Robert stood up and charged the sniper, throwing a hand grenade. And he he took a bullet right in the forehead and they brought him back. And what was so difficult for me was the fact that it was my responsibility as the platoon leader to search the pockets, make sure there was no nothing in the pockets that was, you know, shouldn't be sent home. My medic gave me a death card. We put the coordinates down approximately where the soldier had died, filled out the information. You attached the card with one dog tag to a boot and the other around his neck. And then the helicopters would come in to pick up the dead, and we would wrap him in his poncho. We didn't have body bags. We had ponchos. And these ponchos would flap around a lot. So I had cord and string, and I would tie off 
around the waist and over the head and around the feet. And then we would load him onto the helicopter. And my men didn't want to do that work. They would bring the body back, but it was my job to take care of those final preparations. And it was tough. Roberts was my first, but there were quite a few more. The loss of Roberts obviously was a traumatic event for you, and I imagine all of you are men. There's a similar story elsewhere in your book, ostensibly talking about the death of a young soldier. Only in that particular story, your position is flipped. So rather than being the person who is encountering the loss of someone who reports to them or a colleague, you're on the flip side of that entirely. And in the book, it details how your particular assignment was to not use guns or anything that would make noise, but to somehow try to silently dispatch this North Vietnamese individual. Can you tell me about that particular encounter? That incident actually continues to come back and haunt me on a regular basis, but we were practicing a strategy called saturation ambushing. It was in extreme heat, and so to avoid men falling over from heat exhaustion or heat stroke, we would set up ambushes along a five-kilometer trail. And the idea behind it was that if an enemy force came walking down the trail, you would let them go past the first and second ambushes, hit them with the third ambush, and then if there were any survivors, regardless of which way they went, the other ambushes could take them out. And my ambush was number three in line. It was nighttime, and the first ambush reported a lone soldier moving past their location. And the company commander told the second ambush not to fire because they thought perhaps he was the point man and there would be uh, another a larger force following. The soldier went past the second ambush, and the company commander was still concerned that there might be a large force following. And so I was t instructed to take the man out silently without obviously shooting him. I asked for volunteers, got none, told my radio operator to uh, have his 45 ready in case there was a problem, because he was the only man in the unit that carried a pistol, and hid behind a tree, which was close to the trail. And this young man, this young soldier, North Vietnamese uh, soldier, was in uniform, and he had his rifle over his shoulder, wasn't holding it, it was on his shoulder. And basically, I had to stab him with the, with the knife and, and kill him, and then haul his body off uh, into the brush. That was it. He was a lone soldier. There was no enemy following. But it was a very traumatic experience to have to kill a man that way. I wasn't born at the time of the Vietnam War, so my perspective is obviously going to be a little different. And I'm thinking for younger people than me who were born after the Cold War ended, even more so. Because now America has fairly good relations with Vietnam. There was an agreement just last week to strengthen those ties. But back when the war began, as a young man yourself, what was your perspective on Vietnam? Was it uh, ideological viewpoint as this country that was an enemy of America? How did you view it 
at the time? That's a tough question to answer. I would say I had received the best training that an Army officer could receive. I talked a little bit about Ranger School and how they tested us to the maximum physical and psychological extent possible. They took us to the point of total physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion, and hunger. If you didn't make your objectives, you didn't get to eat because you only got one meal a day. So that training was excellent training and preparation for Vietnam. There was never really once in Vietnam where I felt that I was not in control of a situation because of that training. I mean, I still was scared, trust me, on that point. I always felt like I was in command and in control. And I needed to be because I had 28 men who were depending on me. So that training and my assignment at the 82nd Airborne Division, which was a high-profile, famous fighting unit, and then my subsequent assignment to the 1st Cavalry Division, also a fine history, really in some respects, programmed me or established my thought pattern as to what my responsibilities were as an officer, as a platoon leader, and what my job was. After a period of time dealing with enemy, both Viet Cong and North Vietnamese, I gained a tremendous respect for their abilities as night fighters and guerrilla fighters. They were far superior to us at night. They owned the night, and that's when they always attacked. We always had superior firepower. We always had superior resources, jets and Cobra helicopter gunships and artillery up the wazoo. I mean, I fired a lot of artillery, but they owned the night, and they were superb at silence and being able to penetrate our positions regardless of how we protected ourselves. I did, in fact, gain a tremendous respect for their training, for their capabilities. Often the Viet Cong and and sometimes the North Vietnamese are, are depicted as inferior soldiers, and they were not. They were not. They didn't have the equipment we had, and they didn't have the resources and support that we had, and we always could outgun them. There was no question about that. But they were good fighters. That changed my opinion quite a bit as far as what we were doing there and the overall strategy and whether or not we could even succeed because these were dedicated, both the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese were dedicated soldiers. Well, I mean, we were attacking them on their ground, right? On, on their homestead. We've talked about two incidents in your book, one involving the loss of a colleague, the other one similar in many respects, only you were on the other side of the equation as a young Vietnamese soldier was killed. There's another incident also, you recall, that very nearly also ended in a similar tragedy. And you had a individual who was seemingly critically injured. Can you tell me about that particular incident? We were operating in very dense three-canopy jungle. And by that, I mean, if you looked up, there were literally three canopies of brush and trees and uh, vines overhead. He had been shot through the throat, which was a f- in, a, in and of itself is a pretty severe wound. But there's no way you can put a bandage around a man's throat. And so he was bleeding to death. And we needed to get him out because if, if we didn't get him out, he was going to die from loss of blood. 
And so we called for a medevac and the medevac came into the area, but there were no GPS in those days. And the only way they could find us was if we popped a smoke grenade, the smoke would simply go up and hang up in the canopy. So we literally had to cut down a dozen trees with a machete and open about a 12-foot hole in the canopy. And this was under fire. We continued to receive fire while all of this was happening. But my priority was to try and get this man out and save his life. I had what was called a star cluster, which is a little bit like a Roman candle. And you take the top off, put it on the bottom, and you smack the bottom, and it shoots a rocket up into the air about 200 feet, and then it explodes. So I'm talking to the helicopter pilot, and I'm telling him, okay, get ready, I'm going to shoot this star cluster up into the air, and hopefully the pilot or co-pilot or door gunner would see it. And of course, the first one, I was nervous, and it got hung up in the tree. The second one, they didn't see it. I only had three. And so the third one meant whether or not they would see us in this dense, dense jungle. And I fired it, and uh, they were able to see it and come in. They dropped a stretcher. We tied the man up. They dropped a hook and were able to save his life. A very traumatic experience and, and very difficult under under fire, under fire, because we continued to receive enemy fire while this was happening. And, of course, the medevac was afraid, too, because the enemy would love to shoot down a medevac, would love to shoot down that helicopter. Obviously, your actions... And the actions of the men with you meant that in this situation, this individual was able to get out of the place alive. But when you're in a battle zone like that as a commander, there's got to be a calculation you make where on one hand you're thinking, I want everyone to get out of here alive. But on the other hand, you've got the responsibility for those who are not injured and the potential that you could put them in harm's way and in trying to save one person, potentially you could lose two or three. How do you make the calculation when you're faced with that type of situation, what you should do, how you should proceed? A little bit of luck and a lot of training, essentially to position your men so that your flanks are covered and your front is covered and to fire suppressive fire and in a holding pattern as opposed to attempting to launch a, an aggressive assault against the enemy. You just want to keep the situation at bay. It can be dangerous because men can run out of ammunition. You have to tell them to fire cautiously and carefully, but to mm -hmm. continue to fire, otherwise the enemy would potentially continue to attack you. You and your men were in a position where you had more air support than a lot of troops in Vietnam. And so, you know, that sounds like a big positive when you're thinking about air support coming in from helicopters and so forth in a conflict zone. But in reality, it's not as if there are helicopter pads or aircraft carriers everywhere for these people to land. So in the jungle, I mean, how difficult is it for you as a soldier, to find a spot where these people can come in with their helicopters and use those resources to assist you? We would hole up, and that was one of the big advantages of the AirMobile concept, is that we had tremendous helicopter support. There were more helicopters in that division than all of Vietnam. And so we were resupplied on a daily basis with water and with food and ammunition and mortar rounds. 
if you couldn't bring a helicopter in to land, then you had to cut down enough trees so that they could hover over your location and kick out the supplies. And then there were some times when they couldn't bring a helicopter in at all, and then you just had to gut it out and hopefully wherever you would move to the next uh, location, there would be more of an opportunity to create a landing zone or at least an open space. Predominantly, it was near the Laotian border, where mm-hmm. where the jungle con- was just incredibly thick, dense jungle. As you moved through the little tiny trails, there were no roads or anything. We called them wait-a-minute vines that held us back. The subject of your book obviously necessitates that you talk about a lot of dark things, difficult emotions, and tragedy. But amongst it all, there is some humor. And... Tied to that, actually, one thing I really like about your book that I have to say is that it's very evocative. When you read it, it's not just a question of, you know, this is what happened on this day, what have you. You do a really good job of creating the scene. So reading it, I felt like I could see the jungle, I could hear the jungle, I could feel the jungle. And, you know, getting back to the like humid aspect of it, there's one very amusing anecdote you put in there where you had what in today's vernacular we would call a wardrobe malfunction. Well, I mentioned uh, before that you did not wear underwear. It was just too hot to wear underwear. So you had pants and a shirt. And and I typically would roll my shirt up and put it in my pack and just wear a T-shirt, very similar to what you're wearing right now, an OD T-shirt. And I had a towel, which I would, if we came across a stream or any kind of water situation, we couldn't drink the water. We weren't allowed to drink the water, but I'd wet the towel down and put it around my neck and then under my pack straps for padding. We would typically be in the field for four to six weeks and then be brought into a base camp to pull base camp security for one week. And that was good duty because you got hot food and showers. But it also meant that during that period of time you were in the field, you wore the same clothes. The only water you had to spare was brush your teeth. So you didn't shave. You didn't wash. I brushed my teeth. That was about it. After about three days, you smelled pretty ripe. But then you got used to it. Your clothing at the end of that time, they essentially just threw it away. Uh, And on this one particular occasion, I was late getting to the clean clothes pile. And the only pair of pants that was left was a small. And I wore mediums. And so on about two or three days later, I was stepping over a log and I ripped out the crotch of this uh, pair of pants. And my medic gave me a safety pin and I pinned it a couple of times, but that didn't hold. So the name of that chapter is letting it all hang out. When a war ends in America, up until this point anyway, we're talking about Vietnam, the trend was to have, you know, ticker tape parades and a hero's welcome for the returning troops. That didn't happen with Vietnam. And in fact, a lot of soldiers individually and collectively found that when they came back home, they were treated to varying degrees of hostility for a variety of reasons. One thing in your book tied to that that I noticed was you said that when someone meets a veteran from Vietnam walking down the street, rather than saying, as is typical, thank you for your service, you prefer it if they say, welcome home. How do you see those two terms as having a different meaning from your perspective? There's certainly nothing wrong with saying thank you for your service to a veteran. But 
because uh, Vietnam veterans were not welcomed home and they bore the brunt of American public disgust with the war. And, you know, we lost the war. We we did not win that war. And it was really one of uh, probably one of the very first wars America's ever lost. And the American fighting soldier was the one who, unfortunately, took the blame for that. And so the American public protested and felt that the American soldiers uh, were baby killers and killed indiscriminately. And there were instances like the Cali uh, situation and other cases where things were not handled well and the press and the public certainly made us to be the bad guys. And in some cases, it was well-deserved. But when those soldiers came home, having spent 12 months in the field, doing so either because they were drafted or because they volunteered, but they did their duty and they did their job that they were called on to do. And they were poorly, poorly treated. And many of them never recovered from it. And they hold up as a result. They didn't talk about their experiences, and myself included, although I was still in the service when I returned and continued for about five more years, six more years before I decided to get out of the service. So especially with a Vietnam veteran, to recognize their dedication and their sacrifice to our country and their service, something that we never really had, the words welcome home will have a tremendous impact. It's a game changer. Robin, I really appreciate you talking to me. And we've talked a lot about your book, but really we've only scratched the surface due to time and so forth. So I imagine there are people listening to this thinking, hey, I want to get the whole story from this guy. For anyone who wants to find out about the book and hear the rest of your story, where should they go to? They can come to my website, which is www.robinbartlettauthor.com. They can get a copy of my book there, autographed free shipping, and save $13 off the list price. So hopefully uh, they'll find me. In the next episode, I continue with the theme of the Vietnam War, but from a perspective that's less discussed. The experience of the Australian military. And for the episode, I have a special guest, a returning guest, in fact, Dr. Ian Hodges, one of my favorite experts on history, whose book, He Belonged to Wagga, which is about returning Australian veterans from World War I, has now been recognized in the state of New South Wales, Australia. So now also to add to his cab, he's also an award-winning author. So next week, we'll be having him on. And also, if you're interested more broadly in the topic of Asia 1970s during the Cold War, please check out my back catalogue. About a month ago, I had a couple of amazing episodes with two women, uh, Sarah Poi Lim and Rose Kuhn, both of whom's family suffered through the horror of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia.